speaking loud enough for everybody. You want more speaking louder? Right. I don't have any microphone, so I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I think it's partly the way the room is set out, and so the people at the back... But there is kind of room up here if anybody wants to come as well. So, okay, now... So what happens to us when we suffer a, a, a loss? You see, I think that loss, when we suffer the loss of a relationship or the loss of a parent or the loss of another person, it triggers in us a really deeper loss, goes way back inside that kind of loss between um, us and God, if you like, or us and the divine, and, and we feel alone. And it's, come, it's part of the human condition to, um, to feel abandoned from time to time. We all go through periods where we feel, you know, we're on our own, no one loves us, you know, we're kind of um, cast out and all of this. Um, and, there are and I feel, because of the, the way I work um, and my own nature, that um, these experiences actually offer us an opportunity to go deeper into ourselves and to actually get to know ourselves better. So when, when I was talking to um, uh, Brendan about this, he wanted me... I wanted to call the talk abandoned, you see, but he said, oh, no, no, we can't go with that. So what about, what about coping with loss? And I said, no, because we want, we want to do more than cope in our lives, don't we? We want to live our lives. Like in the words of, of uh, Mary Oliver, you know, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? So, so living with loss. And it's something that all humans... I think it's part of our human condition to have to go through that. And the healing aspect, which is interesting, is actually the journey towards wholeness again. So when we feel this loss, let me go back to the whole... By the way, because I'm a Jungian, I kind of skip from here to there, and then I come back to the the main thing. Because... the Jungian way of working, we're working with the soul, and it always takes the byroads, never takes the motorway. It's not a line, a straight line of thought. It's all sorts of an around, and that's the way the soul works. So, um, so when we uh, uh, suffer this loss, it throws us into something that us Jungians called the archetype of the orphan. So we feel... Uh, abandoned, we feel lost, we feel uh, alone. But if you think about it this way, what is the essential energy of the orphan archetype? What is it? Anybody? Alone. Yeah, but it's uh, but the essential energy of the or- orphan archetype is the search for belonging. You'll keep going till you find. A place where you belong could be a country. Your family can be represented by a country or a culture or a place where you feel that you have a place in. Uh, So the orphan in us pushes us to reach this, to find this place of belonging. And again, in Jungian work, we use... uh, myths and legends to illustrate the, uh, as a metaphor for the human journey. And so the, the one here we'll be talking about, but the ugly duckling. Now see, the ugly duckling, 
is cast out, becomes an exile, is different. Now, many people feel different to their family of origin. Sometimes they feel they don't belong. That, you know, how did I get in here? I have a different mission to other people, or I don't feel part of uh, my family of origin. Um, but in this case, uh, the orphan, the um, ugly duckling goes out, into the, he's cast out, and he goes from pillar to post until he gets to recognize his swanness, that he is a swan and he belongs. He belongs, he knows he belongs, he gets to that place. But this propelling of the journey to uh, get to a place of wholeness or a place where he belongs is the healing journey, you see. Because um, it's very warm here. It's the sun is shining in on me, I think, um, from the back. Uh, there is a beautiful passage here uh, I have in the book um, <clears throat> which talks about this uh, um, the journey of the ugly duckling so uh, the story of the ugly duckling is a metaphor for finding one's truth the central meaning of the exile is always about the search for true belonging and until he gets to the point where he um, recognizes that he's a swan, because he sees some of his own kind, then he feels, he realizes that he belongs, but he wasn't ready to see it before. There is a beautiful passage here. I can't actually find it, so um, I'm going to have to uh, come back to that later. Um, Um, but the, uh, the essence of this is that suffering a deep loss, if we engage with it, you see, rather than try and get away from it. Because I, I've learned this as well, being from this culture, um, Western Europe, uh, that we deal with loss in a different way to other cultures. And when uh, about six or seven or eight years ago, I suffered a, a quite a deep loss, and I, I was going to Mexico to do a training in um, herbal medicine and shamanism. And of course, they're very clued into all this there. And you know, they sort of called me over and said, you know, you are in Spanish, you are uh, de luto, which means in Spanish you are in. Uh, morning and I said well yes yes I know this and you know I'm a therapist and I've dealt with all this stuff and um, they were saying well your heart chakra is completely closed in on itself you're protecting yourself you need to kind of express all this and uh, so they took me off into another room and um, did a kind of a ritual which enabled me to, I suppose to to open my heart and really express the grief you see, because there it's accepted. It's, it's part of the culture, and it's accepted that you will... And even to the point where the, the, I went to stay in a, in, a, in a hotel a few days later, for three days in Acapulco, and they had got in touch with the hotel to give me li little treats in the morning. So, because they said she's in mourning, mm -hmm. and uh, she needs to, to be nurtured. So we don't have much of that in our culture, not enough acknowledgement of the need to be able to be uh, in a place of mourning and express it. Uh, and so what happens is 
that uh, we tend to hang on to what we feel. I mean, when my mother died, um, around that time, I kept getting colds and flus, and my, my immune system went way down. And we know that there's a relationship between uh, our physical uh, health, the emotional health, and our mental health. So everything is together. And they've also have studies... Um, in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which shows that um, cells can be sad. We, you know, if people who feel loved are healthier, we, we generally feel healthier if we feel loved or if we feel we can be in love and we don't uh, feel abandoned or alone. So, so there is all this relationship. So I suppose what I want to say in terms of um, healing um, and living with loss is to, uh, that we need to actually recognize that it's a stage in our spiritual development at some level and also to give in to it, you know, to accept it. Um, some of you might know I was doing a lot, I was, had a program on Connemara Community Radio for, for a good few years where I would talk about various aspects of, of you know, emotional life, psychological life, spiritual life. And um, one of them, I got a text in uh, once, and they said, because uh, I was talking about, um, you know, dealing with the negative feelings and being able to say to someone, uh, well, no, actually, I'm not feeling great. You know, I'm going through an awful lot of stuff at the moment. And somebody texted it in and said, it's great to hear you say that it's okay not to be okay. <laughs> you, know, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, that it's okay. And it's not something you've got to get rid of uh, and hope for the best. Because as Jung, as Jung himself said, he said, what we hold within ourselves, what we don't express, what we keep in the unconscious, will, will come out to us in life as fate. In other words, it will come to us. Fate, F-A-T-E. Okay? So it will come to us. We might get physical symptoms, illnesses. We might have people leave us. Whatever it is. So, so the more we can connect with our inner soul and, and, and our, our own hearts, the more we um, can uh, take, uh, consciously take part um, in this spiritual journey, in, in this, in this um, growth, you know, that it's, it's, it becomes a growthful process. Now, I have a lot more to say, but... I'm wondering if anybody has a question at this point or about what I've said so far. And if not, that's fine. I was just, excuse me, I was just writing down actually what is the limit to which you uh, express uh, or to, to which you accept that things are not well or well in your life or to express difficulties you have uh, because in the society we live I find that uh, we uh, complain a lot therefore you know you have to sort of uh, have a border to uh, if you want to express that you're not well you know to which extent you know you could complain yes, all the time and yeah. you could also accept a lot of stuff but, but you see I, I hear you but complaining is not really engaging with the process. Complaining is what people do often on the Joe Duffy show. And, you know, we should be given this and we should be given that and we have these needs. The other thing I'm talking about 
It's a process within that we say, right, I need a week at a retreat. I need to go and take myself away and live in the mountains. That's, that's what I'm talking about, rather than... Compl- because I know what you're saying. The, the work complaint is not right. Yes, to, yes. To express your, yeah. your solo... But, but, but it is a question of taking it on board oneself and, and one's own boundaries and being able to say to someone, do you know what, I don't feel like going to your party because I'm feeling crap and I want to be on my own and take the dog out or something, whatever it is. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Could I say that wouldn't it take a lot of courage to isolate yourself, to go into a retreat when you're feeling so desolate? What I'm saying is, you know, do you, where do you get that inner fortitude to isolate yourself from community when you're on the assumption that the community is has left you? Support? Yeah. But that's one, thank you for that. That is one direction, but for other people, they need to have people around them that accepts them for the, they are, the way they are and don't say, actually, cheer up. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Uh, because, uh, you know, for me, it's about solitude. But on the other hand, I've noticed that this time, when I went through this grief uh, at the loss of my mother, I actually wanted people around me. It's just that all my family were away so I had to do it myself you know, they're all living in different countries but to absolutely take your point yes for some people it's a, it's a, it's a, a place to replenish within but you see that's probably the difference too between an introvert and an extrovert to some level uh, and also different stages we are in our life um, you know that we can, we can need different things sorry is that okay? thank you I just picked up on that man and your comment on the isolation. I would have viewed that comment as if you need to withdraw is to recognise actually I can't do this at the moment and then you could just go for a walk or wherever and have a good old scream or a cry but it doesn't mean to cut yourself off completely but maybe just have to cut yourself off for that moment. Uh, or I think moments, it, yeah. but not maybe to go into a monastery or a retreat centre, or maybe that's part of the journey at a different stage. But and given your own life, if yes. to get to work, you're not going to be yeah. able to do that. But to actually, maybe if you're in a difficult situation, even say like in a job, if you just go into the toilet and say, I need a, a moment, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just and isolate yourself. Just a moment to yeah. gather yourself for the next job. But you or see, day or part day. of the issue is part of the issue is if you feel you're in an environment and in a culture that will support you, you're more likely to be able to feel free to do your journey. But if you, if you're in a situation where um, it's accepted, I mean, I remember when I was a little girl here. Um, and if someone, if my parents said, oh, someone's passed away or something, I, I was terrified. I didn't know what to say to that person. I just didn't have the vocabulary. And, I, you know, a lot of people would say, you see, that they don't know what to say. But, but the more you're connected to your own, and I've attended a lot of births and deaths as well in my work, the more you're connected to your own uh, heart and, and, and feel good in yourself in terms of expressing your emotions and feelings, the more you can be with someone then. Because you're not going to demand anything of them. You'll just be there. 
Childbirth is one of the biggest things. I, I was a, a childbirth activist for a long time, and I've written a lot of books on the importance of prenatal life and the birth experience and escaping technology, the negative aspects of technology. And there, what you want, the same when somebody is passing away, you want somebody there, not doing things, tasks, you know, let me give you this, or let me give you that, let me change the bed or whatever it is you know you just want someone there who can hold the emotion do you understand hold and contain and as as a therapist I run retreats as well I have one coming up next week um, three day retreats you have to be able to hold the energy for others if you don't do that the group has a completely different feel to it do you understand there's the necessity to contain. Now, where do we get our training in being able to contain others? Where? We get it from our childhood. The extent to which our parents have been able to contain us, which very few, I'm sure I share with most of you in the room, very few of us ever had perfect parents. We have what we call good enough parents, or what Winnicott called good enough parents but they failed us and that's part of the human condition because we have to grow and we can't live in a utopia so is that okay yeah <laughs> yeah okay so but if we haven't been contained as children in other words if somebody hasn't um held our negative feelings for us and and made us feel okay when you're small it's harder than when you're older to be able to do that for yourself. It's a process of, of, of psychological and spiritual growth. It really is. I mean, it's taken me years, you know, to get to the point where I feel so happy in my own skin that I would say, do you know, if I go tonight, that's fine. But I used to go through things that, oh my God, suppose I'm going to die tonight. No one will know that I'm here and all this, you know. But you get to a certain point when you yourself are inhabiting yourself. Do you understand? You're, you're in yourself and you, you can hold your feelings and, um, but in times of, of, of loss and bereavement I think uh, uh, often we need a human hand I shall never forget a situation uh, my ex-husband is a doctor and when he was doing his training in, in Dublin years ago uh, I was um, about to have the, our first child and uh, we were socialising, you know, in a group. And doctors, uh, there's probably a few doctors in here, but you'll know what it's like and the, the kind of chat that goes on with young doctors and, and all of that. And this woman was there, and I was talking to her, and she, she, she had a look. She was just, like, pale. She was distressed and distraught. And she said to me, she said, oh, yes, I've just lost my first patient or my first, you know, client person had died. It was an old person that died. but And I said, oh, that's, that's really bad. And she said, no, that, that's not the issue. She said, what happened was, as he was dying, he said, would you hold my hand? And she turned away for the morphine. You see, that's an example of what I'm saying about this embodiment. And so in a time of bereavement and loss, sometimes we need to be on our own to replenish. Those of us that are more introverted. Like for me, it's the land. It's Connemara. It's the beach. Down on the beach. You know, out with the dog. It's nature. Nature does it for me. Nature is 
what we call, I have put myself with a small S, S-E-L-F, into, into nature. Other people, they need um, others to be around them, but not in the way of, I oh, come on, get out of this now, you know, you'll be grand. And... So, so I don't know whether that sort of explains a little bit about the difference between um, the, the two things. But this, you know, being thrown into um, a place where you feel like an orphan, there's a gift in it, you see. This is what I'm trying to say. That, and it's the same thing that any of you that know the myth of the wounded healer. Uh, it's the, the, the um, centaur who... Uh, um, what's his name? Chiron. Uh, he was wounded in the leg. I mean, it's, it's a whole myth. But, but the, the method of the, of the uh, story is about connecting with uh, your own wounds. And that our wounds are actually conduits to healing. That's it, period. One sentence. Our wounds are conduits to healing. So, so instead of, like, I, I had these terrible experiences as a child. You know, my mother never loved me. I uh, had all this stuff. Yes, it's, it's really part and parcel of who we are. But on the other, on the other hand, it doesn't serve us to feel that we're victims. Do you see? Yes? Um, it, it brings to mind a phrase that I heard quite a long time ago. Uh, self-pity is awful dangerous fun. And um, mm. I just uh, went through the experience of uh, my wife of 40 years just walked out on me. So uh, I, I kind of went into a, a pit of self-pity and um, became very obsessed with my own situation. But then I realized, you know, that there's nothing there in terms of self-pity. There's no payoff in it. And, uh, and I was better to, um, to get into the, the real feelings rather than the, the thoughts and the self-pitying attitudes. So um, I, I hear what you're saying, and I thank you for it. Thank you for that. Um, you see, we're not helped sometimes in the culture. Uh, in America and, and here, there's the Jerry Springer and there's the marketing of wounds. Yeah. And, 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 you know, go to court, get money out of this person. Right. You know, get, get so-and-so, you know, you, you, you'll get something out of this. So there is a payoff sometimes, which isn't good because it doesn't actually enable us to grow anywhere. It's just, okay, I've got this wound and now I need to get money for this wound um, and that will sort it out because of course it never does um, but yes and um, uh, 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 being in victim never serves us because we're in prison we know it means we never grow up uh, I mean some people have horrendous experiences and uh, they have learned from it and they can actually help others then with the same experiences I feel myself like I have never actually um, talked about bereavement in this way to a group. I, I give a lot of talks. Um, but I feel I'm, I'm a walking, I'm a walking <coughs> bereaved, you know, in the sense that I've experienced so much loss in my life that I've really, it's almost like it was my spiritual calling to actually deal with this in myself um, in order to, uh, and then, of course, if you deal with it in yourself and, and, and um, look at, at you know, how it has helped you grow, you can help others to do the same by perhaps uh, seeing, seeing it in a different way, see, seeing 
loss and bereavement in a different way. But deep down, you see, our sense of separation is what causes our suffering. When we feel separate from God, or thrown out, uh, when we feel separate from our family, when we feel separate from whatever. But the point is, and it's the same with love, you see, because we tend to look for love outside of ourselves. You know, if that fellow loves me, or if this, then, then, then I'll feel whole. But in essence, and then that person leaves us, and we've no love in, inside, because that person was holding all the love. Because we're projecting, do you understand? Whereas in fact, we have it within, we are God. There, we are aspects of God, we, we are, part of us is made of starlight, we know that. Um, so, and we are love, but, but, but because we look for stuff outside, we lose it. Now that doesn't mean we can't be bereaved, obviously, when someone we love leaves us or passes on those feelings will be there but those feelings are our feelings do you understand and it's about our own hearts and our ability to love one of the things I find very obviously as a writer but it's in my nature when you know in our profession we are trained we're the only profession on the planet that our training is in our weakness because we we have to do a lengthy analysis Art therapy to, to get to the point where we can be therapists ourselves. That's our training. Uh, otherwise, we'd be projecting onto other people all the time. Um, and that's not the, the focus. But when I was doing my own training about 25, 30 years ago, uh, my analyst got me to write. And that's how I discovered I actually was a decent writer. And so I wrote all the time. So that's one of the ways of dealing with loss as well. For some of you, writing, writing in a journal, painting. In my workshops, we do paint a lot of painting. I use music and um, spiritual, um, uh, uh, sacred poetry, and music, and uh, we do visualizations where you you kind of you know you go on a journey within, like like a meditation, and then coming out of it, I get people to paint. The reason for the painting and the writing is that. It comes unedited from the ego, you see. When you go to bed at night and dream, this is a Jungian view, your dreams and all the imagery that emanates from your unconscious is not filtered by the ego. Okay? So you might go to bed and say, oh God, I hope I dream about, you know, I don't know, Antonio Banderas or someday or some gorgeous guy. Um, and then you end up having some other uh, strange dream. Uh, if you write it down in the morning uh, immediately, because you can lose it, um, there is meaning in the symbolism that co- in the dream. There is meaning in it. But the act of writing it, just listen to this, the act of writing it means that what comes from the unconscious to help us is not lost. Do you see? Because often we forget, like our, 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 the minute we, we walk around, we forget the dream. So the important thing, I'm out onto dreams now, as you can see, but the important thing is write the dream, but also write the emotion in the dream. Because if I'm working with someone, and I work with, their, I work with my clients' dreams all the time, um, there's two things I need. The context, in other words, when did you have that dream? Was it Thursday night, Friday night? The reason for the context is that it will tell you where you are. 
you know, it's, it's where your ego is at that day, where your situation is. The dream comes on top to say, no, 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 that's, you need to see this. For example, um, I had somebody once who uh, came to see me and she clearly was troubled, obviously, she wouldn't have come. And, um, and we talked about her mother, and her mother was wonderful, and my mother was great, and I had a great relationship with my mother, and she really supported me, and blah, and blah, and blah. She comes in about three weeks later. I had the most desperate dream last night. Right? Well, you know. So what, what was it about? I dreamt that my mother was a drunk and a tramp, a prostitute. And I said, right, okay. So... We, you know, we started talking about it. She was very distressed. Why did she have that dream? Anybody know this? Well, she probably had a couple of issues with her mum. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think she saw her mum as too perfect. Correct. You see, dreams come as a compensatory mechanism. So if you are idealizing a situation, your ego wants to see your mother as perfect, okay? So you're idealizing it. So you go to bed and you'll dream, geez, she was, she was an awful bitch or whatever. Um, and that's to bring balance. So she, the dream was saying you need to have balance. Dreams will always come to give you balance. And they've shown, actually, in the studies of people, Bruno Bettelheim, different people who did studies on dreams, uh, they studied the dreams of people in concentration camps who were dying, dying of hunger, and they had wonderful dreams, wonderful dreams, to bring this sense of balance and wholeness and to keep hope there. See, this is how magical the unconscious is and working with, and, and we have such, you know, there, there's such an array of richness that we don't even know about half the time. So if we can pay attention to our dreams and to the call of our soul in whatever way it comes, whether it's through suffering a bereavement um, or loss or anything else, and work with it. We're growing all the time. We're growing into this sense of wholeness. How did I get into dreams? Was there something that got me into dreams? I've forgotten. Oh, yes. You said there were two things. One was context. What's the other? The, the, The emotion of the dream. In other words, I say to them, okay, what were you feeling in the dream? Because you all know some dreams, you feel a lot of emotion, happy or sad or scared. And then there are other dreams that there's not much feeling in it. The reason for the emotion, to ask the patient, the client, about the emotion in the dream, that will tell you at what stage, what stage you're working at, how the ego sees things. In other words, if you're going through, um, I'm actually talking about myself now, but you might think I'm talking about you, but, but a, a feeling of when, when somebody has left in your life that you've had a long relationship, because I've experienced that, then you, you'll have dreams that will be taking you along the journey. And once you get to the dream where there's very little emotion and more a feeling of, oh, you know, things are okay, then you know you've progressed. But bef- and, and, and I mean progression in a normal way, not that you should be getting to that dream. But before that, if, uh, if, if you're feeling, uh, if, if there's a lot of terrible emotion in the dream, you need to just express it. Draw it, paint it, whatever it is. Walk it. You know, we all 
do mindfulness now and walking meditation and mindful this and that. You know what I mean? It, it's a question of just working through it and not rushing. I, I, feel, I feel connected with you, so I want to share a dream of mine which will illustrate this. About, oh gosh, let's see, 25 years ago at least, um, I lost a baby in the womb. And it was a very painful situation. Early, you know, th three or four months. It was a very painful situation emotionally for me. And I was working as a... I was in analysis at the time and working with my dreams. And then... And th there was a lot of stuff in that. And then one day I had a dream and it was pretty much... I looked on the calendar. It was pretty much the date at which the baby would have been born. So um, I had a dream... And I knew, you know, no one said in the dream, this is God, but I knew it was the hand of God. There was a big hand, God's hand, and there was this beautiful little girl inside. Tiny, minute little thing. Just like that. And there was a lovely feeling of beauty and completion. And I knew that that was the end of that. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So the dream did it. Not me consciously. Uh, you see, we ca people think that you can, you can use your will. Right, that's it, I'm over that now. It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. And so we need to just follow the flow of it. And when I had that dream, I knew, I was in analysis at the time, I knew that that meant that that phase was finished now for me. And, you know, I could move on, whatever it was. Just before... Um, just before you spoke about that, you, and I didn't manage to write it down, but I heard you and I wasn't making the connection. I don't quite understand it because you were talking about the id. Now, the id is something I don't really understand. I didn't mention the id. Ego. So the ego, ego, yes. Sorry, ego. Ego, because I don't understand it. Ego. Sorry, that must be some sort of a weird subconscious thing. That's okay. Uh, yeah. We all have it. Uh, the mm -hmm. ego. In the subconscious mind, or in the subconscious world, or in the dreamscape, where is the ego? Is the ego in there, or is that a no? Is no, it's not. The ego. It, do you ever have a dream where you you're kind of half waking up? Uh, you know, you're half waking up, and and your ego comes in then, and and you start trying to change the dream. The ego isn't in the dream. It bypasses sort of the ego. Simple example, because I don't understand um, it that way. Maybe is there any way you could give it Well, you see, the, 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 that would lead into talking about, um, into talking about uh, the structure of the psyche. And, uh, and I'll be teaching that, actually, next weekend. But basically, the ego stands there. The ego is in consciousness. It's in your consciousness. Because your ego is you, who you think you are, you know, and I'm Benik Moje, and, you know, I'm whatever it is. And, and it's, whereas, um, it's always in the center of consciousness. It's not in the unconscious. Not the yeah. Question. Yeah, okay. So, 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 so the, the beauty of dreams and of this meditation work and the visualizations and doing this therapeutic work is that you're bypassing the ego. Now, that doesn't mean that when you wake up or when you start your work, you're thinking, oh, God... I'd had that dream. Let me put that in. You see, that's what the ego does. The ego. I have a, I have a spiritual master, and um, it was she that actually pointed out to me and made me see it clearly the difference between the ego 
and the self. The higher self, like the spiritual self or the higher self. She says the ego's job is to separate us from the higher self. The ego does not like to be thought to be dying or, you know, not in control. Do you see? Our egos are in the way all the time. Now, some of the... I'm not a Buddhist, but but I understand a lot of their uh, culture and a lot of their... uh, um, teachings, which is, you know, to get rid of the ego to a certain extent. I suppose as a Jungian, what we would do is more that see that the ego is not that the self is the important thing and it incorporates a bit of the ego, but that we need to stop listening all the time to this ego. Well, I want this and I want that and, you know, I'll go for this and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. We don't know. Sometimes we have to get out of our own way in order to allow life to come through us. Do you know what I mean? But we're so used to it, you see. Um, now, we need egos. You know, I, 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 in, in life, we have child development. You have, the child has to learn to have an ego. We all have to have an ego, otherwise we'd be walking around in a big mush. Um, but, at the same time, especially in the second stage of life, which Jung called individuation, uh, you know, past 35, 40, we're, we're starting to become more who we really are, as opposed to, you know, the striving to go outwards, get a job, get married. Uh, The first part of life is about building the ego and a place in the world. Then the second half is more about, well, right, okay, hang on a minute now. Did I go into banking because my father wanted me to go into banking? Actually, I think I want to be a painter. You see, the unconscious, in, in Jungian work, we have what you call the shadow. Okay, so the shadow is in the unconscious, but it's the part of us that we repress, okay, and we put away. But it also contains our latent characteristics. In other words, what we haven't yet become. So you could have a poet in your, unconscious, in your shadow, but because your father wanted you to be a banker or a doctor... You didn't express your poetic side. So what will happen? Well, you might marry a poet or uh, one of your children will become a poet. Whatever needs to come through, if you don't express it yourself, you'll project it around you. Do you understand? Uh, Or you might find, you know, a well-known doctor or a well-known banker who has a nervous breakdown when he's 50 and goes off and becomes the poet he wanted to become. Do you understand? So in our, unconscious, in our shadow lies a lot of richness. Not just the things we don't like or we repress. A lot of richness. All the things we maybe would like to, to be or to have done. I was um, very uh, privileged to have parents that lived a long life. And my father was 101 when he passed away. But And, you know, he did it very gradually, going back into being like a little bird and sleeping a lot and shrinking in stature and, you know, all of that. But being with him, and uh, he used to love when we read to him, uh, I, I, I saw in him this sense of completion, that he had rounded his life off and that he didn't have regrets. It's so sad when you feel that people die and they have regrets. Or, you know, uh, you hear of people and, and, and you, you see it that way. So th- that, in a way, is our task, is this sense of individuation. 
of coming into a... Individuation means coming into a sense of wholeness within. So that we're in harmony with the masculine energy, the feminine energy within ourselves, with uh, the divine aspect of ourselves, with the human aspect of ourselves, with the shadow, and with the, you know, all of it together. And then my point on this, coming back to us now, and this talk, is that bereavement and loss can help us get there. It's part of that journey. And it could be that as human beings, I know in my case, because I have a belief that we choose our embodiments in line with our spiritual challenges. In other words, I believe uh, in reincarnation and the fact that we come back to round things off, uh, etc. Um, and we may come in, for example, to deal with something like abandonment, which is mine. So therefore, if that's what we come in to deal with, we may suffer, we will draw into our lives people and experiences that will best help us learn the lessons we need to learn at a spiritual level. And so abandonment could be one of them. And, but what is the essential learning in abandonment? What is the essential learning in it? Not to abandon yourself. Correct. Don't tell anyone I planted you here. <laughs> that, that, that is it, you see. Because it takes an awful long time for us to feel that sense of wholeness without anyone else. Now, you know, it is interesting because Jung, any, any of you who've seen any of the, of the films uh, uh, on Jung, Matter of the Heart, for example, where he was interviewed um, uh, by the BBC, I've forgotten the name of the guy, but uh, he talks, he was an old, old man. It was just before he died when he made this interview. Uh, and, and he talks about, you know, the unconscious and all of this and about uh, uh, the projection and the complexes and how a man meets a woman and they fall in love and all of this. And he's saying, but it is a madness. It's an illness. It's not normal. It's just an illness, this feeling of, of because you're projecting onto the other person and they're projecting onto you. And so then the question is, well, does that mean then that we don't need anyone else, that we don't need to have relationships, that we should be fine in ourselves? Well, no, it doesn't really, because we may be fine in ourselves, but wouldn't it be nice to share with someone? See the difference? But most of the time, because we're not, we're always struggling. We're not constantly whole in ourselves and thinking everything's fine. We need other people. We need the connection. And the best we can do and the most um, growthful is to be able to be with ourselves, you know, to engage with what's going on for us rather than try and get away from it and to uh, understand at some level that this is, this is the path towards feeling whole. Whether it's, for me, it's essential for spiritual well-being and emotional and mental well-being is, is, to, is to feel that we actually enjoy ourselves, we like ourselves, we accept ourselves. And in our culture, and I went to school here, locally, you know, in Kylemore and different places in Dublin, with the clergy, with the nuns, and I can say that we are not taught that we are beautiful human beings. We are told that we're bold, and we are not taught that we are in God's image. You know, I remember the nuns saying to us, don't look in the mirror, you know, that's the sin of vanity and you'll see the devil and all this. So, so what do we do then? We spend the rest of our life trying to come back to feeling 
good self-esteem. And you, we go to therapy. <laughs> so, 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 and, and that's just a fault. You know, that, that's just this separation thing. We're not separate from God. We're not separate from God. We're part of God. And he's part of us, or she. So, um, anyway, I don't know how I got to that. Does anybody, yeah? Could you talk a little bit about the role of forgiveness in the healing process? I could. And, I, and thank you. And I'll tell you why I could. Because it tends to be seen. Now, I may be wrong, but this is my feeling. I don't know what you feel about this. It tends to be that we are taught, certainly in... Um, in, the, in, 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 in a religious uh, sense, to forgive others. As we would forgive ourselves, but none of us forgive ourselves. The forgiving of ourselves is the issue. Do you understand? So, like you, and I, I, I hear you and what you've been saying to me, it took me an awful long time not to beat myself up about grief. About, like I used to say, well, would you ever, you know, don't be such a crybaby. You should have got over him by now. That sort of thing. We have to forgive ourselves first because we're always beating ourselves up and we don't even realize we're doing it. How can you forgive others when you haven't forgiven yourself? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's very hard. Hmm? It's very hard to forgive because you can do it with words, but is it in your heart? I, I, I don't know. For me, I think it comes down to self-forgiveness. Forgive the part of you that was involved in that situation that turned out to be a mess. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on that, Robert? I, I, have, I struggle with the concept of, of, of forgiveness. Yes. I really do. Yes. Sometimes it can just be a mental thing. But I think you have to feel it in here. And then you know that it's moved. Something has shifted in you. I, I, I can relate a little bit. I can say that um, I had a difficult relationship with my mother in early life. Very difficult. I had a very difficult birth, nearly died, premature, all that kind of thing. Separation from mother for a long time in an incubator. And difficult relationship with my mother. No bonding, nothing like that. I can say that I actually have forgiven her before she died, well before she died. I saw her as, as just a child, or, you know, I saw her as having no blame for anything. She just, you know what I mean? But that didn't come overnight. You know, it took a while. Uh, yeah? Do you think the greatest hurdle to what we call forgiveness is acceptance first? Acceptance of? Whatever you're whatever. wanting to forgive. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yes, I think so, because until you're in the acceptance that this has happened and that there's no going back, you can't really move on, can you? Yeah, I think so. I think acceptance is a huge thing, part of, of the process. Maybe it comes a bit before uh, the forgiveness. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't understand that concept because I would I would be thinking in the larger picture. I mean, not on a personal level, mm. but if you take historically uh, traumas that happened to home countries, mm. you know, up to no fault of their own, mm. in our own historical um, situation here with the divide in our own country and all the trauma that our own country has gone through both sides of the border. Um, mm. 
how does one reach an acceptance with that type of past in that? That well, well, how I, does forgiveness come about in, in that on a mass consciousness? Because how I hear the question, but I on on a personal level, I could do the forgiveness. I can see I can do the forgiveness on a personal level, but if it's on a in a scale that is outside of me, Collective, if you wish, yeah. um, that's something I. It's not that I don't understand, but I don't know how I would come to that place. Mm. Um, so I don't have an answer for that. But I well, I, well, how I deal with that sort of stuff is that, in general, is that I always say to myself at some level, whether it's on a personal level or on a collective level, which is what you're talking about, is uh, that there's a meaning in this. There's a reason and there's a meaning, and it's, it's part of that. That's what I do. If I was a Syrian family... <coughs> if you were what? If I was a Syrian family, I yes. was bombed from my heaven. yes. I don't know where I'd find the meaning. If I was living, I almost was killed in a bombing once. Um, I don't know where I could find the understanding or the forgiveness for that because that is outside. I and yet, it's almost yeah. like alien to me. Of it's course, but you're from your culture. But if you go to India, you'll see people totally accepting of their. The caste system, for example, they're untouchables, some of them. They're all accepting of their... I'm not saying that that's what we have to do. I'm just saying that there is a, a, a place for this. There is a place for it but somewhere. But it's madness. Is that a form of madness rather than... No, I think you're going into words now. Any form of normality yeah. that we understand. When that massive type of trauma is know. perpetrated. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, do you think that a very young child who has suffered traumatic loss can be sensitised to that in such a way that they struggle later on to deal with other losses? When you say sensitised, do you mean helped, healed? Um, no. I mean the, the scar there. That, oh, yes. Uh, yes. Of course there's a scar. Absolutely there's, there are scars so there. So that child would struggle later on to deal with uh, a loss that another child wouldn't in the same Correct. way? Correct. Absolutely. And, and may or may not get the support he or she needs to turn it either into a gift, as in they themselves have become a bereavement counsellor or whatever it is, or, or, or go the other way and do the escape route until somebody w helps them. Absolute course. Because, you know, we talked about victims. Children are They're the only ones that are really victims, children because they don't, we don't have a choice when we're children. Um, so, absolutely. But I suppose if you were looking at it from a, a higher perspective and a therapeutic perspective or a spiritual perspective, you would say that the wounds of childhood set you on the learning path of forgiveness. They're words, but you, know, you can see that that... Uh, can, and, and indeed, there are there are plenty of people who 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 suffered uh, horrendous uh, experiences and who then go on to become almost ambassadors for 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 uh, uh, you know for their culture or their people. Was there someone over there who just want to give everybody a chance? Yeah. 
No, nobody on that side wanted to. You want to say something? I just wanted to clarify that by acceptance, I didn't mean accepting it as good. No, of course but not. Just of course not. In America, say it is what it is. Yes. That kind of acceptance. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's understood by you. I don't think oh. you. Yeah. You were also saying, sorry, that you were also saying that the lady there that said that she suffered uh, close with the bombing in Syria. Yes. No, not in Syria. Sorry, it wasn't in Syria. No, it was here. Irrespective of where. But I'm just saying that uh, the acceptance that she actually survived is the main thing. Herself. That she was lucky to be the one, not the rest. Yes. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's a, Yes, I don't know. Well, but that's very hard because yeah. there are people I know didn't survive. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky. Yeah, and my daughter was caught in the 7 7 bombings mm-hmm. and survived when others didn't. It did, it did, it did uh, affect her. But um, I know that we are supposed to stop soon, so if, if there's any... Oh, no, what am I talking about? I have to read you this poem. I have to finish with the poem. I always feel it rounds things off a bit, and um, I let it slip, and I'm stalking for too long. Uh, so I just wanted to read you... No, where is it? Um, because it's... It's... Uh, very related to our theme. And it's David White from Where Many Rivers Meet. The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So with that, I'm going to say um, goodbye to you or good morning to you, and um, I hope uh, we'll meet again soon. I have bought some of my books if anybody wants to uh, get them, and I have some, some brochures there as well just to sort of of my work around here. So thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.